This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today is a good day for the VREP community because honorable member, yeah, Tom Davidoff. I think Tom, Tom Davidoff has moved from past guest fan favorite to something. He's a five-timers club. He's, he's, boy, he's, he's got more the than jacket. That. Yeah. He's got a gold jacket. You know what? Tom is one of our favorite guests. He's been a friend of the show now for five Since plus 2016, years. 2016. Yeah. Robinson Crusoe analogy. Yeah. Go back and listen to that. Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> if you ever, the first episodes were a little rough. I think that was episode two or three. Yeah. Well, we're so happy to have Tom as a recurring guest, but Tom Davidoff, professor of real estate finance and director at UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. Overall, he is the go-to guy to comment on the real estate market in BC. He has been for a number of years. You'll see him in many publications. He's also doing peer-reviewed academic articles on real estate all the time. It's exciting to have him on the show. It's, it's always exciting to have Tom on the show. And the reason we had him back, of course, we want to hear his general forecast, outlook for interest rates, general take on where we're at in the market right now. But specifically, Tom was in front of city council last week arguing for a new program, Making Home. Making this is what home. it's called, Making yeah. Home, which passed Kennedy Stewart's plan and this is to take a single family lot in Vancouver and allow for upzoning for six units. Six units. Six units. A six pack on a standard lot. We're going up. There's we're going no up. Question. I think there's at least a, another floor on that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're going up. What I didn't fully understand was, was the costs potentially associated. So what does this do for land prices? What does this do for demand? What does this do for affordability? What does this do for single family owners in Vancouver? There's so many questions and we covered all with Tom. What does it do for community amenity contributions? And, and I love this conversation. Really what we're doing is, you know, here's the thing. This is only past that it's going to go to planners, right? It's, right. it's now at the stage that they're really going to iron out the kinks and then get back to city council for a vote. But I still feel like there's things to be worked out here. There's some questions and it feels more like a conversation where we don't really necessarily have the answers. We're kind of just thinking out loud today. That's exactly what so this is. Some things and specifically myself, I think some of my questions oh. as I'm asking them, I'm thinking when you start thinking about this, it goes a million different, your, your mind goes a million different directions, right? Because this is complicated policy. That's right. You know what? Yeah, this is as much as ever a conversation, unscripted, uncensored. Yeah. And speaking of unscripted and uncensored, our Instagram. Uh, oh man, I used to. You know, you're you're a bit of a king of Instagram, uh, a kingstagram, and it's true. And uh, you took the Instagram today, dropped which a lead is some, balloon, which is legendary content. Legendary content. <laughs> Here's the thing to back up a little bit. I don't do social media very often. Never uh, I feel like, yeah, one of the few realtors out here that never really took to it. But I feel like we have a pretty good following on Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. You pointed this out to me. Our team member, Melissa Moretti, she's doing content and it's like catnip for the followers. They love it. <laughs> catnip. Is, <laughs> it's that, like catnip. is that what you're... I don't know if it's catnip. She's doing some good content, though. She's definitely it, doing some good. Worth, she's getting a lot of engagement, let's say. she's Yeah, she's a charismatic person, and she's uh, doing some great content. That's so right. it's worth checking out. But what we've decided as a team is that we are all going to be posting to the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. That's the handle. That's at right. Vancouver Real Estate Podcast right. on Instagram. 
we're going to be much more active. So if you are on Instagram, you should definitely go check out, give our uh, handle a follow. Is that what the kids are that, saying? That's, that's right. <laughs> give it a follow and you won't smash that subscribe button smash, on our Instagram. Smash it. And uh, yeah, if, if you already follow us and you saw one story post that seemed not necessarily off brand, but uh, just totally unrelated to anything <laughs> social media related that anybody else is doing. So it's a work in progress for one of the three of us, but I can promise you, you want to be following Vancouver yeah, Real Estate Podcast. On for sure. Instagram. And one thing we are going to be doing again is we've just got Kokomo Studios set up here, our now permanent podcast studio. We are going back onto YouTube. So very excited for that. So pretty We're soon, bringing in the cameras to Kokomo Studios. You were in here over the weekend laying some brick. Yeah. Well, no. And honestly, and, <laughs> and don't tell people it's faux brick because uh, I, I, I've been calling it the brick and mortar. But really, uh, yeah, some people call me the brick layer around here. Some call me the gangster of love. But it's, it is a, it's a beautiful look in the new studio. There's a lot of new art going on. And uh, the vibe in here feels surf. It feels Hawaii. It feels Kokomo. It feels, it feels light pretty and bright. Good. It's Kokomo Studios trademark. Fantastic. And now, Matt, a word from our sponsor. This week's podcast is brought to you by Hawkeye Wealth. Yeah, past guest fan favorite Justin Smith and his team. Fantastic guy, Justin Smith, over at Hawkeye Wealth. Hawkeye helps their clients invest in various private real estate investments, such as residential and industrial development projects with an aim to diversify their portfolios and achieve better risk-adjusted returns than they would find elsewhere. Yes. You, you, you really dragged on that elsewhere. Elsewhere, yeah. <laughs> well, always when I think of Justin, I think big network, great due diligence, and a deal finder. If you're interested in learning more of what they're doing over at Hawkeye Wealth, and the opportunities that become available, head over to hawkeyewealth.com. That is hawkeyewealth.com. I finally got it. Hawkeye, like he's a he's a deal finder. He finds the deals. That's hawkeyewealth.com. Thanks, Justin and the team. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. And before we get to our conversation with Tom Davidoff, Matt, I just want to say we've had some tremendous feedback on last week's episode with Kingswood Properties, Lauren Siegel. Man, the amount of people that have reached out, apparently that really resonated with a lot of people who are excited and interested in real estate. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, definitely give it a listen. It's, it's called a masterclass in real estate with Lauren Siegel. And really, truly, it felt like a masterclass. Deep, personal, and uh, a fantastic episode. Absolutely. And uh, last but not least, Adam, we should say, man, have we lined up some guests moving forward. This yeah. is the most exciting part of the year because, you know, it's the start of February, tons of energy, and we've got months worth of guests and just cream, cream of the crop. This is so exciting. But maybe we should uh, cut to our talk with past guest fan favorite, Tom Davidoff. Lots of questions surrounding making home. We unpack it here today. Okay, so we're here with Tom Davidoff, Professor of Real Estate Finance and Director at UBC Center for Urban Economics and Real Estate. How you doing, Tom? Doing great. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, well, thanks again for taking the time, Tom. I feel like you're our our go-to every you're, you're, you're four carrying, to six months here. Uh, you're carrying the show yeah. and you didn't even know it. <laughs> uh, we always get really positive feedback, that's for sure. Well, it's very kind of your listeners, given I was once again wrong on my forecast last time. I said my best guess is prices hold about still, and I think I said I wouldn't be surprised by anything. But uh, no, central point estimate was way off. Prices are way up since we talked. <laughs> you know, we were gonna, we kind of were gonna save this question for the end, but I'm just curious: how long have you been in Vancouver now? Uh, 2009. 2009. Since you've been analyzing this market, has your feeling or perception of the market changed dramatically over the years? Or have yeah. you become a believer, Tom? I, I think I have. I mean, I think I always was. I mean, I think I always felt like in the long run, Vancouver was heading to uh, 
playground for the rich. You know, we're supply constrained, really high amenity, and that's sort of the, where the world's been heading towards, you know, great coastal cities. So I think that's still the long run trajectory, and I, I don't think anything's changed. That's just the dramatic price increases year over year. You know, I think it's interest rates that, you know, it, it really is true that in a low interest rate world, uh, homes in Vancouver are worth an awful lot of money. And I think the issue is, you know, the market's sort of slow to adapt to that, which kind of makes sense if you think about a housing market, that money can't flow in in a way fast enough to set to uh, sort of long run fundamental value overnight, even if fundamentals change pretty quickly, which they did coming out of the great financial crisis. So that's my best excuse. I mean, you know, people have been saying bubbles since certainly since I got here, and I'm guessing well before. And uh, at some point, you have to mark your beliefs to market. And this is interesting because the kind of key thing we wanted to talk about today was was this making home policy that I think you were involved in uh, yeah. convincing people about. But just before we get to that, you know, a low interest rate environment can be defined any, I guess, any number of ways, right? I don't know when uh, we get out of a low interest rate environment, but presumably we have to do a, a number of rate hikes before we get out of a low interest rate environment. What, what are your thoughts on where we end up by the end of the year, interest rate wise, and how that impacts the market? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'd like to look to the uh, long-term bond yields that are still quite low, you know, sub 2%. They flirt with rising a lot when news comes of central banks tightening, but then they never, they haven't hit two in a really long time. So that tells me, you know, we're not going to hit two, probably. On the other hand, maybe that's still manipulation due to um, quantitative easing by Federal Reserves. So, you know, I don't have a lot of confidence, but, you know, I think we'll see obviously some short-term rate hikes. Uh, in the next year, but you know, I, I don't know that we're ever going, you know, much north to north of two percent. Could happen. I mean, it certainly has many times in the past, but uh, that doesn't seem to be in the cards. So, Tom, we we really wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about making home. Can we maybe start by just kind of unpacking the idea a little bit for our listeners? Sure. The proposal is instead of main home, laneway, basement suite, or duplex, duplex couple of basements, you can now go up to six units on a lot and get a bit more density. I think city planning has to decide how much more density. Currently, you can build to about a 0.7 or 0.8 floor space ratio on a uh, 4,000 square foot lot, so something like 3,000 total square feet, you know, and, 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 and there's adjustments with basements. Now you'd be able to build a bit more, you know, somewhere between one and 1.5 is my understanding to get to six units. Now, how you pull off the layout, how you get the electrical and sewer handled, that's for city planning to decide. And that'll probably help decide how much you can actually build and parking. That's another open question. So that that's to be determined. So this resolution said, uh, okay, hey, planning department, come up with something for us to actually vote on that's more concrete than six units and somewhat more density. So just in terms of how the sausage, I guess, is made here, Tom, the vote, was it last week? I think it was last week when this all, when it got approved, this is the, the first of a process that goes through many iterations, goes back to the planning department, comes back, gets voted on again, if I understand correctly. Yeah, I think there's only one more vote and then then that's the rules and uh, people can apply to build more. And exactly what that application also has to be defined. You know, my hope is it's pre-zoned. You just have to pay a fee. But I think there'll also be another track in, which is you uh, have to, instead of paying cash, another alternative would be you take some of the units and you somehow deed restrict them to be permanently affordable. So that would be a sacrifice on the part of the owners. And the idea of either track is, hey, you know, the benefit goes to the city rather than primarily the landowners who just get to do more with their land. You know, I'm just thinking about some of the other policies we've talked about where I think it's safe to say you're at least one of the architects of past policies that have been implemented over the last five odd years. Who came up with this? This were you, Did you have a hand in this or is this... Uh... Where, where did this yeah. come from? Is there a precedent for this? Yeah, you know, I discussed it with Mayor Stewart and people involved in formulating the policy, and I and I reached out to counselors. Lisa Dominato, 
had this similar idea. I'm not sure what her, you know, ask from landowners was or whether it was just a, you know, you can do this if you want to, but it was going to be some kind of trial program that Lisa had. I think the ask got specified by Stuart. And, you know, where I think my, I hope, (laughs) value added was, was to argue that there ought to be a cash track, that the city does better, in my opinion, gets more value if they say, if you want to buy into this, you have to pay a significant amount of money. Because when the city asks for affordability, you know, how much can they ask for? You don't want to ask so little that the landowner and the developer get all the benefit of the upzoning because the city's giving it away and there's a housing crisis. On the other hand, you don't want to ask for so much that nobody takes the program up. And so, you know, not getting the taxpayer ripped off but still letting development happen. We've seen over and over again with rental stuff, that's really hard to thread the needle. But asking for cash is super easy because what you do is you set a pretty aspirational price, say a million dollar buy-in. And, you know, maybe people say, that's ridiculous, you know, no way, and nobody does it. Okay, well, then you cut the price to half a million. If there's a lot of take-up, maybe you settle at 750, right? Cash is easy to read. Uh, affordability requirements, I think, a little more opaque. So my contribution was saying, look, if you're going to ask something for people for joining this program, let them build what the market wants, but but get the benefit in cash. And that can go to homeless people. That can go to whatever good cause you, you want. So Tom, can we maybe talk about how it works in thinking about the cash? Because there's been a lot of, you know, everything from what's going on in social media or in, in news articles around this. There's been lots of talk about how the units break down at what price points or, or market rent versus potentially a subsidized rent or how, how is this going to work? Yeah. You know, people have gotten into, boy, I don't know. I don't think you can do affordability. And what they do is they say, well, let's start with the purchase price of a lot, add in construction cost, et cetera. I look at it a little bit differently, which is to say, if you tell developers instead of 0.8, you can go to one or 1.2 FSR, that just means they can build more square feet of residential space. And, you know, I think 400 bucks a foot for residential isn't a crazy number. So this is primarily going to be builders buying land uh, from existing homeowners, you know, on homes that would have been torn down and turned into, you know, duplex or single family anyway. And they just get to build more. So you take a builder and tell them, hey, you can build more. If you pay us money, they're going to be willing to pay something. And if it's a decent amount of density, that something's going to be an awful lot. You know, ballpark, if they went all the way to 1.5, you'd be adding, you know, three quarters of a, of a floor on a 4,000 square foot lot. That's 3,000 square feet you can build. If you figure the wedge between all in project cost and sale price is easily 400 bucks, that's over a million dollars of value. I don't know if anybody will pay a million bucks to go into this, but they'll pay a lot. So I guess essentially what this sounds like is you're buying like upzoning share well, with or the city bu- too. buying upzoning, right? So so like I'm just thinking like in Grandview, let's say they have RT five duplex zoning where you get whatever 0.75 or whatever at this point, but for a specified price, you can basically upzone, and that looks like you know five hundred thousand dollars, seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, or or whatever. It's like a more transparent community amenity contribution. That's what I'm looking for, precisely, precisely. And, you know, the only issue is, let's be smart about it. You know, they had a target of 2,000 units. So, you know, really squeeze the money out of there. If if the price you're setting, but one way to look at it is, you know, in the NHL or NFL, if you're not getting called for any penalties, you're not hitting hard enough. So if there's only 2,000 opportunities, but everybody in the city wants to do it, you're charging too low of a price, right? Charge a, such a high price that you're exactly hitting your 2000 target, right? That's how I think about it. But yeah, it is just paying. You've got a predefined uh, density you can buy, or you can go with the baseline. And if you want to go with the higher density, you pay a fixed premium. And I think developers will like that because it's transparent. And, and so I'm, I'm just thinking through this, if I'm a developer, and I, I guess there's in, in setting the price, from the perspective of adding supply, we want developers to choose this option. Incentivize them for sure. Yeah. We want to incentivize them. So what what does that look like? And and don't we potentially run a risk of, of asking too much and basically having people underbuild sites? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the real devil with the implementation of uh, affordability requirements because it's really complicated to figure out, 
okay, well, there's a bit of a discount off of rent, but it's only for 20 years. And, you know, so you have to think about the time value of money. But what's easy is to just see what's happening, right? You want, say, a thousand of these done a year. You set a price that's high in January. If nobody's taking it up, you cut the price in April. If too many people are taking it, you know, if, if, the, if you've already, you're going to fill your thousand units too quickly, you say, all right, well, let me raise the price. I think there's interest probably at a higher price given extreme interest at, say, 500K. So I think you just manage the line with pricing. I mean, I think any business knows that, right? If you've got a pizzeria and there's a line out the door every day at once, you're setting too high of a price. If nobody's coming, you got to cut the price. Hmm. Yeah, this is this is interesting. What 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 kind of timelines do you have a sense of? So we did the first vote. It goes to the planning department and comes back for another vote. I'm just thinking in terms of uh, the short term impacts of, of yeah. a policy like this. Yeah, I'm guessing pretty low. I mean, maybe there'll be some conjectures among landowners. Maybe some optimists will hope it'll be underpriced. And so maybe that bids up RS a little bit. But other than that, you know, I think it's, I, I you know, I, I can't believe planning hasn't drawn up plans for RS. I mean, everybody knows you need more opportunity in, in the RS zone. So you'd think they have some off-the-shelf plans that could work, that they could say, hey, here's something you can build if you pay up. But maybe not. You know, maybe one thing they definitely have to figure out is infrastructure, because if you go to a decent floor space ratio, I think, you know, you get into electricity and sewer problems. And it's not just one lot because you can't just expand one lot. You've got to expand all the way out to some arterial where the capacity already is. And so maybe the city has to, you know, be the mover. They'll say, you know, the city will front the money and then anybody who buys in has to cough up. So either you're going to have to do a little bit less density and just accept that, but go with the existing infrastructure. You step up the infrastructure and figure out how the city doesn't lose money on that. And does this work for like, so city of Vancouver, is there a minimum size lot that this works for? And is it kind of blanket across the city or are we looking at specific zoning types? Yeah, so like 33 by 122 or whatever is the standard. And then, you know, surely you'd be able to do it on bigger than that, like a 50-foot lot. Right. But I don't know, you know, will they allow it on a 90-foot depth, a 100-foot depth? That that would be up to the planning department to figure out. But so say a standard lot, but and in terms of kind of blanket rezoning, is that the plan? I hope so, yeah. I mean, I hope it's across the city and let the market figure out what the best place for it is. Well, it's interesting because I mean, just using Kelowna as an example, my understanding is that, you know, for some of the, the fourplex sites, if they're slightly smaller, you can build three. And if it's slightly yeah. smaller from there, it, it's just contingent on, you know, the frontage and the depth and, you know, they have a metric for it. So it'd be interesting if they do that. Like if you could still get away with four or five potential units on, say, like a 35 by 105 or, or one of the kind of more irregular lots kind of throughout East Van thinking about it. Hmm. Yeah, some architects, Marianne, whose last name, unfortunately, I'm going to forget. I think it starts with A.M., something like Amodio. I, I apologize for not having her last name right. You know, came up and, and um, Jake Fry was involved as well, have come up with what they think are plans that work, but that's probably on a standard lot. So, you know, I'd hope you could just sort of telescope in or out based on lot size, but that gets into plannings and, and architectural stuff where I'm out of my depth. Just thinking about your study that you did with Andre Pavlov and I think Sir Somerville, yeah. if I if I have that right, about the yep. impact of a laneway on different areas of the city and how it negatively impacted values on the west side, that might be a leading what do they call that? <laughs> the leading question. But where do you think this? You said let the market decide. What what does this actually look like in terms of transforming single family lots in in Vancouver? Yeah. I mean, I just got a call from a friend of mine who said, yeah, I don't want this in my backyard. I'm like, Laneway's bad enough. And and I understand that. I'd, I'd rather have trees than six houses in my back, in my neighbor's backyard for sure. But, uh, you know, we've all got to pay the cost for affordability and you can't make single family neighborhoods affordable. You, just, you know, you can do laneway and basement, which is okay, but that's two units on an awful lot of land, you know, to make six units affordable, even to upper middle class families. You just have to put more density in. And I, I think that does compromise how pleasant the neighborhood is. I really, you know, some people disagree. Some people think it's great. That, you know, I mean, and there is an argument, right? Like Point Grey is kind of dead. 
and you know putting in more families young families would lead to better retail options it just feels like a more vibrant neighborhood you know i'm old enough that <laughs> i'd rather the trees in the quiet uh, but different strokes for different folks and, and the point is you just cannot have affordability at the existing density and the existing you know structure of one large main house or even the pair of duplexes so I think there is some compromise in amenity. Tom, I'm thinking about, you know, building costs going up, thinking about even uh, with with now kind of the push towards net zero construction and some costs potentially there as well. And then also land prices, as we've seen, have gone up dramatically. Does this create a more affordable Vancouver? Well, you know, I mean, the upside of being able to do this is, of course, the reason the land prices are going up is the sale prices have gone bananas. So I think this, you know, this has to work. You know, I think people want smaller homes. So I think the economics are going to be just fine. You know, does it take us all the way to affordability? I doubt it. You know, I, I don't think so. I think it helps. I think, you know, a world without this is a more expensive world and one where the city has a lot less money, you know, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars a year less money uh, to spend on homeless support, uh, maybe building affordable housing or converting older uh, condo units to rental or something. So I think this helps, but no way this makes Vancouver all of a sudden, hey, 50K a year is plenty and you get a nice house. I don't think that's happening. It just makes me think that the part about the paying the city, and I understand why that's a condition for it, but as we've kind of seen with development in the city, it often gets, you know, every cost gets sent back to the end user or to the consumer at some point. Is there, I just wonder how you how you tackled in thinking about that and was there ever a proposal where you just left the profits at the developer and with the potential that someone will build for similar margins that they're making today? Or just thinking about this, Tom, and I don't have a clue if it's an upfront cost because presumably, you know, you're taking on the risk, right? Of you yeah. know, building something a year out, year and a half out, and yeah. your upfront cost of a million bucks, let's just say, on top, de-incentivizes, you know, people from doing this type of development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a great conversation. And I think UDI and other groups have been very effective at uh, pointing out the, you know, sort of, well, here's the sale price and here's all the fees you pay to the government. But in this case, I don't think that's a relevant, you know, sort of statistic, right? I mean, where prices and rents come from is you have how many people want homes and how many homes are there for sale. That's where prices come from. And builders are always going to sell for whatever they can, right? I mean, it doesn't matter whether the city asked 50000 or 500000 from you you're going to try to sell the, the property for as much as possible. Where city fees can affect prices is if fees are too high, nobody builds. But given the city has a target of 2,000 units a year, you set a price so that there's 2,000 units a year. You could set the price at zero or whatever the market will bear, and that's not going to affect pricing. Builders, out of the goodness of their heart, aren't going to make prices lower, even if people are willing to pay more just because the city asked them for less money. So in this case, I don't think the fees have any adverse effect. You know, what the city has to do is do a trade-off and say, hey, how much do we want to hold up developers for and not let a lot of people do this? Or do we make it cheap so that we flood uh, the RS zones with a bunch of new supply? And I'm just thinking out loud here, but what about some sort of percentage of the final sales? As opposed to a fixed cost. As opposed to an upfront fixed cost. Because then, A, I guess the city takes on some of the risk. But also there's a potential upswing if if there's a, a bounce in the market. Yeah, I mean, I guess in that way, uh, the city's a partner in development and you take on you de-risk. And that could be more attractive to builders. Obviously, builders would have an incentive to cheap out a little bit because they're getting taxed, right? If I put in granite countertops, I'm paying a tax, right? Because, uh, you know, some of the lift, lift goes to the city, you know, for that, that kind of account. And, and then there's accounting for profit. Right. I think generally gets gets tricky. You know, how do you account for the developer's time? What about the time value of money? So you could tax the builder profit, but then you'd have to get into the business of calculating profits. So to me, the transparency of here's how much you have to pay, you know, one and done would be preferable to me. There is a liquidity issue, I suppose, if you say it's payable on completion and it's sort of like GST or whatever gets paid at the end after the developers got their cash, maybe, maybe as a liquidity matter. That works better. I don't know. You know, one thing that strikes me about, you know, the the conversations about redevelopment 
you know, over and over and over again about communities and NIMBYs getting together and, and being upset about things. My guess is that, you know, certain people are not going to be excited about this. Certain communities, especially in Vancouver, are not going to be super excited about this increasing density. Is there any function here in which communities, ha- has this process, I guess I haven't followed it that closely, has this process went through that consultation at this point? And is there a point in which, you know, the NIMBYs can band together and <laughs> and gum up the works here? That's a good question. You know, they had this hearing. I don't know how well advertised it was. I think there were only like 12 speakers. And I think maybe, uh, you know, a very large fraction of those 12 were uh, positive. You know, the city city planning department has got done a zillion soundings of the communities. And, you know, maybe it's cheap talk, but most people say, yes, you know, something like town, home, missing middle seems to be pretty popular as a solution in RS zones. But again, I think it's probably popular until somebody started building it next to your house and then they'd find it a little bit less attractive. I'd be shocked if there isn't some uh, uproar, if, if you're really getting to build six units, you know, possibly double the density that you currently have. I mean, no way you don't get some upset neighbors. You know, maybe they say, oh, geez, this is great. You know, someday I can build. And then it's not just a laneway and basement. You know, I can have all my kids and their kids live my property and maybe they're excited about that. But no way nobody gets upset. I'd be shocked. So, and I'm kind of thinking out loud here, but can you remind listeners, and I guess I just want to make sure I have it right, of the, the findings in that the study that you did with Pavlov and, and Somerville was... Sure. Was basically, yeah, I'll let you explain it. Yeah, so we looked at laneway homes. And in particular, we sort of did comparisons within a neighborhood. So within Dunbar, within Killarney, what have you, compare two homes next to newly built homes. And they're as similar as possible, but the one neighbor of a new home is next to a new home that does not have a laneway home. And the other is next to a new neighbor that does have a laneway home. And this was before duplex was an option. So it was single family with garage and maybe basement suite, or it was single family with instead of garage or smaller garage, you have a laneway home. And we found on the east side, where most laneways were getting built early in the life of the laneway uh, program, there was no adverse effect on property values. But on the west side, where people don't build laneway homes as frequently, we did find adverse effects. So within the same neighborhood, at the same date, with and without laneway, there was a, you know, somewhere in the 5% area, you know, ding on the neighbor's price. For a laneway home. Now, that seems like a lot. It's estimated with a lot of noise because the west side, there aren't that many laneway homes. But that's our best estimate. And citywide, I think it was two and a half, three percent on average with you know zero on the east side and bigger on the west side. Now, this program's picked up on the west side, you know, maybe since the foreign buyer tax preferences have changed a little bit on the west side. I'm not sure. But, you know, I think the reason you saw more of these built on the west side, east side than the west side is because if you're you know, affluent enough to be on the west side, you're willing to pay for open space in your backyard, and you probably have a stronger taste for your neighbor uh, not looking into your kitchen. I mean, the east side, I think people are probably pretty constrained on how much they can pay, and uh, they're just not able to pay much to avoid having that, that neighboring property. That's a conjecture, because we, right. we can't prove that from the data we have. Yeah, and it just, I, and I, I'm trying to formulate a question, and I, I don't think I... I'll be able to, but it just makes me kind of, I'm kind of spinning a million different ideas on how this plays out on the West side, right? If this actually leads to a decrease in single family prices. Yeah. It's not like, it's not like the the, the golf club people are going to go, oh, you know, this is terrible. I'm moving out of Dunbar because my neighbor can build more density. I don't think it's at that level, but I do think it's like, oh, this house is less nice than it used to be because instead of a tree, I've got, you know, another house in the backyard. Right. So presumably, I mean, for the builder or the developer and the, it's still, you know, the, whatever the fee is, I guess you're still gonna, you're, you'll do well, but it actually, if you're from that community and live in that community and develop in that community, there's, there's potentially some downside to, to engaging in. I think prices are going to go crazy in West Vancouver and the North shore potentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. West yeah, Van is no, back you on want the peace map. and quiet, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it'll be a while before this, you know, appears in great numbers, because I think really this is just an alternative to building a new single family or duplex. 
So, you know, most lots aren't going to change in the near term. I think it'll be a gradual process. Tom, in, in thinking about kind of the missing middle, which you mentioned, is there a, a breakdown in the units? I mean, if you can get, say, on a standard lot, 1.5 FSR, you're looking at about 6,000 square feet, so about 1,000 square feet per unit. Is that realistic, or what are the, the size breakdowns, or have they, have they gotten that far? Yeah, again, uh, Marianne and Jake, I think, did come up with a sort of test plan. I don't recall the breakdown of square footage, and you know, I don't know what would maximize profits subject to having enough setbacks, enough green space, what have you. I really, I just, I just can't comment on that. Tom, one thing that jumped out at me was this was, uh, this was proposed last year and it didn't pass. Presumably you were as involved at that point. Just curious, like what, has something changed? What's happened in yeah, the Yeah, I was zero involved. You know, Lisa's plan, I, I think highly of Lisa Dominato. I think she's thoughtful and supportive of, you know, trying to promote affordability by building more homes. But she didn't talk to me about that proposal. And, you know, I was really uh, just my involvement was offering this alternative to on-site affordability in the form of, you know, just a, just an ask for cash, which I think is much simpler and, you know, probably delivers more benefits to taxpayers. I mean, just to plug it, you know, I, I think it's like a half billion bucks a year easy that you can make out of this program, which is a lot of support for people who are struggling. So that's all oh, that's all my involvement was. And then but, you know, I have to say the counselors weren't all that receptive to that part of the plan. I think they all believe RS needs to change. You know, most of them are of the generation where their friends are really struggling to find a place more so than homeowners who are worried that, you know, it won't be just so in the neighborhood. So I think there was support for that. The buy-in, honestly, I don't think it's that complicated. You pay cash and you get to play. Otherwise, you don't. And you set a price. So you sort of clear the market. But I think that was very confusing to counsel, honestly. So, you know, that was my, my part of it. I hope planning will be receptive and, and develop a coherent plan for pricing. But I honestly found that part, you know, just, just participating in the hearing and taking questions to be something that the counselors were struggling to digest. You know, Tom, we, we've had you on the show over the past, you know, five years talking about a lot of policies that have been kind of focused on curbing demand. It feels like more people are getting on board with that this being a supply issue. Does it feel that way for you? Absolutely. And I think there's a reason for that. You know, the prices first exploded at a time when it's definitely true that foreign interest in our market was growing. So I don't think it was crazy for people to, to think that between the speculation and foreign buyer tax, okay, maybe we solve the problem. The problem is it's not just Vancouver, it's throughout North America. Some combination of low interest rates, household formation, you know, the end of the great financial crisis. So you had some pent up demand. And of course, in Canada, you know, huge immigration has meant that, you know, you had a new problem. It's not just overseas buyers. It's absolutely people who live and work here. And uh, I think, you know, I mean, there are dead enders who will say, no, 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 no. The problem is we haven't designed the foreign buyer tax effectively enough. And I know my neighbor's house is empty, but he's not paying the empty homes tax. You know, and maybe there's something to that, but I, I think it's very hard to look at all of North America and particularly Vancouver and conclude that there's no problem in terms of local supply and demand. No, just um, just thinking about these kind of two potential zoning for a, a single lot, right? Like that it's RS or RT or whatever. And then if you pay, you know, a certain amount of money that you get the the extra FSR force space ratio that you can build. How does this, I'm just curious, how do you think that plays out for latent value in the land or the land lift or, or how the market will make sense of, of what that land is worth? Like, does this add who, I guess another way to put this is, is what does this do for land prices in the city of Vancouver? That's probably yeah. a much easier way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think the city has been underpricing consistently. I mean, Canby has the problem of infrastructure, but I think, you know, everywhere they've been charging like, I don't know what it is, you know, sometimes under a hundred bucks a foot per buildable foot. And, and and if you give away something that's worth four or 500 bucks for 50 or a hundred dollars, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. Everybody's going to take it up and that's going to really increase land prices. So I hope planning gets the message that you need to charge real money for this. And what the way to price it is set a quantity target, figure out how much of this you want to have happen every year. To me, a good reasonable approach would be to say, hey, we don't want necessarily more construction in terms of lots, but we want every single family to single family luxury conversion 
to be replaced with this program. So try to you know set pricing so you hit the targets. If, if city planning can effectively communicate that and say, when you're done paying the fee, maybe you're a little better off than building single family, but we're not planning on leaving money on the table, then I don't see why land prices would rise in response. If City Hall is ineffective at communicating that and they say, well, we'll ask for a little bit of affordability, you know, one of the units you got to knock 50 bucks off the rent or something like that, then I think obviously the right to build is valuable and land prices do rise. Paul, maybe maybe switching gears here a little bit, but every time we have you on, we, we ask you to do a little bit of forecasting. Yeah. What what are your thoughts on uh, on the rest of 2022? And, and presumably, like everyone, it, it's been a surprising past 18 months. And the market seems to be incredibly busy right now. Inventory uh, seems to be very, very low. What are your thoughts on 2022? Yeah, I mean, I get a couple of the realtors, you know, show me properties of a certain type things, you know, mostly for real estate porn purposes, partly, you know, for personal purposes and, you know, and and just trying to keep up with where the market is. And there's a lot of red. Everything sells. You know, just stuff is really, as I understand it still today, you know, flying off the shelf. I mean, I've been saying interest rates are a risk factor since the start of COVID and even before that, and I still believe it. And, And rates have gone up. You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm going to give myself, you know, I'm not exactly Nostradamus in terms of prices, but I did refi at 1.6. You know, I paid the uh, prepayment penalty to, to refi about a year earlier, and uh, I'm paying 1.6 instead of today. I think I'd be close to three. So rates have gone up. And, you know, there can be an effect that you bring sales forward, right? There's probably people who have committed two, two and a half percent interest rates that need to buy soon or else their, you know, qualification at that rate expires. So maybe you run out of that and, and rates being 3% instead of one and a half, that should have an effect on the market. That's a real difference in cost. You know, it's, it's like doubling cost. So that should have an impact, but maybe with the stress test sort of lagging, it doesn't have as big of an effect, right? You know, so your qualification may not change that much with the interest rate. So that's interest rates. You know, I think we're going to come out of Omicron. And if anything, the economy should be stronger. Inflation's complicated how it affects real estate. So, you know, you look at the inventory flying off the shelves, and that's usually a short run signal for continued price acceleration. So, you know, barring a change in the macro to the downside, uh, or, you know, people really flipping out about the rate increase, I I guess I got to say, you know, we're up a bit again this year. And by a bit, you know, five, 10 percent would not surprise me. And it sounds like, if I understand correctly, then interest rates in your mind are probably the biggest headwind here. Is it other other well, things? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, like suppose there's a war in Ukraine and <laughs> that's terrible in some way. You know, obviously, global political uncertainty can make Canada more attractive, not less attractive. But, you know, I could see, you know, things are kind of looking a little scary around the world. So, you know, and I wouldn't rule out Taiwan uh, on the sneak, on the down low. Well, well, people are looking over at Ukraine, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's the whole point of the Ukraine crisis. But, you know, that that, that gets into global <laughs> politics prognostication, at which I'm terrible. But anything bad is bad, right? I mean, maybe instead of Omicron, you have like the merger of Omicron and Delta, like super contagious beats the vaccine somewhat, and it's super deadly, right? I mean, that, that's got to set people back a little bit, you'd think. You know, and then and then work from home. You know, maybe people say, forget it. Why am I paying for Vancouver? I'm going to go move to Halifax because I'm never going to go to my office again. So, you know, I put interest rates number one, but maybe global recession-type stuff and pandemic freak out at two and three. What about potential policy changes looming? Yeah, I don't think they're going to do demand squishing. I just haven't seen any appetite for that from the federal and at this point, provincial governments. I'd be pretty surprised if anybody puts the smack down on, you know, property owners. Generation squeeze said anybody over a million should pay, you know, on the margin, another quarter of a percent to a percent in property tax. I would be stunned to see that implemented in the short run. So I don't think demand side policy smackdown and supply stuff you know, maybe a liberalized zoning, but that takes a long time to percolate through the system. So we're talking a few months to a year out. I, I don't think supply changes is really part of the story. Sorry, I was just going to say, and it sounds like at 2,000 lots per year here, the making home, this is this is a, a, a long term, this is kind of decades to have a 
really serious impact, I would guess. I, I think that's correct. I think that's right. Yeah. Hey, what do you guys hear from buyers? What are they, to the extent anybody's worried about anything, what, 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 what do you hear from them? Well, I think the biggest thing we've been talking about, you know, ad nauseum is inventory. And I was actually, that was yeah. kind of my final question for you, Tom. But, you know, I mean, since I've been selling real estate and monitoring the market, I've never seen inventory like this before. I've never seen a market like this. It's just incredible. Yeah. And and I, I'm trying to wrap my head. I, I've got my own ideas around why we're sitting in this low inventory kind of period. But I'd love to hear your take on the inventory right now and what you think is driving low inventory. Yeah, you guys see it much more closely than I do. So, you know, I, I can guess. One thing would be, I mean, obviously people are dying, right? I mean, one way you get inventory, unfortunately, is life events. And deaths are, I don't think, slowing down. Maybe, you know, divorce type stuff people are doing less of. I just don't know. Household formation may be accelerating, right? You may be getting people saying, all right, I can't live in my parents' basement anymore. It's just too tight because we're all working from home all the time. So that would be on the demand side. So you get a buyer without a seller in that way. The other possibility is, you know, people are actually moving and downsizing or moving somewhere else, but saying, I like what's happening on the appreciation side. So I'm not going to sell. And then I'm sure you guys have, you know, a tight market. You know, it's just uh, hard to buy or sell. You know, maybe maybe you don't get sellers. You're subtracting a buyer too, but I'm guessing there's a lot of people who aren't moving because they say, you know, I don't want to sell my place and, and move to a new one because I, I just don't think I can buy anything. I won't find anything to buy. And since I'm not going to find anything to buy, I'm not going to bother selling. I'm guessing you have a stalemate in that sense. Absolutely. But, you know, the funny thing is usually, you know, the models we write down in economics say when there's lots of properties for sale, lots of buyers and lots of sellers, that's usually a hot market and a market where nobody feels like they can sell and thus they don't buy. That's supposed to be a tight and a cold market. So, you know, that's a little hard to say. But apparently, you know, the I can't sell because I can't buy phenomenon is a real one. Yeah, we're we're definitely talking that conversation yeah. a few times a week. <laughs> it's real, for it, sure. It, yeah. And I guess everything that goes into that, right? And not only are you just not seeing the types of properties you want to see on the market for a lot of people, just the you know, the stress involved in in actually securing one is uh right. yeah, a lot of people will put up with a lot before they go through that process. Yeah. And, and are you seeing buyers move and hold on to their old property for the appreciation? I, I imagine there's some of that. You know, I, I or think just there's, a lot of the buyers are investors. Well, I, I think there's a lot of hoarding because I think everybody in Vancouver thinks about real estate a lot as an investment just because of our price points. And, you know, we've joked Culture. about Vancouver being uh, a real estate in Vancouver being a bit of a sport. And I think for a lot of people, it is right. I think a lot of people think about, you know, well, with low interest rates or with low inventory or the fact that my, you know, townhouse in Maple Ridge has done 60% in the last year and a half or whatever. Why would I sell? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and a lot of people have a lot of equity. And of course, now with rents kind of coming back in a strong way, if you can leave a trail of revenue properties behind you, a yeah. lot of people are opting to do that. That's um, right. Yeah, no, no capital gains. And, and, and of course, low carrying costs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's really tricky. And I, I, you know, it, your heart bleeds for a lot of people that are trying to get into this market, young families or people that need to purchase just because there's, there's really just, you know, a one, one property comes up and, and everybody, uh, and their dog is through it on the weekend. And then everybody writes, you know, seven, eight, yeah. 15, 20, however many offers and, uh, and, and the price always blows everybody away. Right. So it's always, uh, the comps until, don't support ne it. until next week. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a pretty, it's pretty remarkable, you know, as, as expensive as it gets, it's sort of like, well, I don't want to talk about particular politicians, but you think, boy, this guy's as bad as they can get. You couldn't have anybody worse than this guy. And then, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. And I guess the Vancouver uh, housing market uh, has looked that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tom, before we let you go, um, we've got this segment, the five wire. Do you have time to quickly Sli stick around for that? Slightly, slightly changed, I would say, since last time. Yeah. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> so uh, question number one is, what have you been binge watching uh, to disconnect uh, lately? <sighs> okay, I got to remember it correctly. The last thing we watched, and we just gulped Mayor of Easttown because uh, we got Crave recently. Oh, yeah, and the reason we got Crave was uh, Succession. 
So uh, we really gulped succession all three seasons, and then we uh, went through Mayor of Easttown. Uh, thumbs up on both of you. Mayor of Easttown, that's one that I haven't. We, I, we've I talked started it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Actually, this is a good reminder to go back to it. You know, it, it makes you glad you don't live in Philadelphia. It's just a terrible accent, depressing area. <laughs> you know. It really is. I think, I think it is objectively the worst accent. <laughs> um, question number two, what song has been on repeat lately? Oh, you know what's a good one? Is uh, Gloria Gaynor played a, a festival in the 1970s. What's it called? Like the Vino, you know, something to Vino in uh, Chile. And she sang, I will survive her, uh, her big number. And uh, that is a good one. A very good live performance. Oh, in, in Chile in the seventies. Oh, interesting. So that might, yeah. Post 73. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and she goes on this riff about like, Hey, no fires, fires are dangerous in the middle. And I was like, huh, I wonder if that's like a subtle reference to uh, Pinochet or whatever. You know, the, the dictator was locking yeah. people up. And I'm looking at the audience and I'm like, is this only like torture people, <laughs> torturers who get to go or whatever? But <laughs> with all due respect, and I'm, I'm butchering Chilean history and being a bit unfair there. But I called a, a colleague of mine, actually two of my colleagues in uh, the Sauter School of Business, two outstanding researchers. Uh, Alvaro Parra and uh, Guillermo Marshall are both uh, Chilean. And I asked my friend uh, Alvaro, who I've known for a few years now, about that. And he's actually from that town. And he said, no, at the festival, you hold torches. You know, now they've gone to like lighters or cell phones, but it used to be literal torches. And she was, you know, she was actually complaining about torches. I I don't think there's much to the politics. Ah, all right. Been buried. This is a, this is a silly way to phrase this for an 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 academic. academic, uh, (laughs) Been buried in any books lately? Uh, What's, what's one book you've read lately that, uh, well, you know, I've been trapped in war and peace for a really long time. I read a little bit, you know, I obviously read for work all the time. So for pleasure, you know, I try to read something and, you know, (laughs) uh, it's been war and peace for a really long time and I'm (laughs) not even close to done. But, you know, it's like it's like the sunk cost fallacy. I'm like, no, I can't quit now. I've read too much. (laughs) That's great. And we've never had that recommendation. I don't know if we ever will again. I I, I was going to say, I'm not even sure if that's a recommendation. (laughs) Um, Start of a new year. Do you have a resolution that you've set for 2022? Uh, You know, do some good academic research. I mean, I've had a lot of fun uh, chatting about policy, but I really was excited by the Laneway Project. I have a bunch of other research on the go and, you know, finish up. I've got a great paper I'm working on with a really uh, great co-author, Joe Williams. So let's get that out the door and done. That's the big one, you know, just do my job well. Fantastic. And and last question, I feel like we've asked you the under $1,500 a couple of times. So maybe best gift you got at Christmas. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, gift. But you know what I just opened up today is I got an iPad. So hopefully that's a good gift. But that was to myself. Oh, oh nice. man. You know what? It's funny. We've talked a lot about iPads as being the one. Well, a- Adam, this is your line. It's the one thing I feel like every Apple product that I have has totally transformed my life. And Adam was saying the iPad's the one thing that hasn't actually, you know, <laughs> I, <laughs> changed. <laughs> I don't know if you tell that to someone who just bought <laughs> right. one, but I, I feel like I have a tough time using, like, I need a keyboard for, for yeah. business. But I feel like where an iPad might be useful is if you're maybe reading at home or yep. or in bed or something, which I typically use my phone, although I'm bet, I bet it's a better you know user I, experience. I recently got an iPad and I had one in the past, but I, I got a new one. And I also got Apple News, which I'm not sure how if this is killing the news industry or, or helping it, yeah. but it, that's the play. Saturday morning, I it's endless. The... Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the magazines yeah, so, you get and everything else. Yeah, it's all about reading. That's why I got it is, you know, I get home and, you know, the computer, they, you know, <laughs> the train stops at a train station, the work stops at the workstation. So the idea is to read, uh, you know, professional uh, articles. You know, what are one of my colleagues don't even try to get, you know, typing work done and actually just lie down with an article. I got the I, Apple pen so I can mark stuff up. So that's the hope, but we'll see. Ah, going to try to not install anything else, but you know, we'll see how it, how it goes. Yeah, Twitter <laughs> could ruin it. 
Twitter Big always time. ruins it. Uh, <laughs> It'll ruin everything. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tom, how can people find out more about what you're up to? And, uh, of course, uh, some of the publications we've talked about today and just if for our curious listeners. Yeah, well, I tweet all my ideas, good and bad, at Tom David Off, all one word. And I think it's all one word, yeah. And uh, I'm at blogs.ubc.ca slash David Off is where I put my research. Fantastic. And just out of curiosity, one more question. I remember reading a tweet of yours recently about the making home that there was one counselor that played the heel. <laughs> and and I don't know if you want to name names. <laughs> well, you know, at a process level, I'm not going to name her, but I think was she knitted. Pretty... <laughs> no, 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 no. Just no. This is the one who's like, I have an objection. I objection, objection. You know, uh, I have oh, a procedural. I know. Yeah. That one. But who I meant, of course, in terms of substance, of substance, was uh, Colleen Hardwick, who went off on our usual thing, like, what data do we have that we need more homes? Well, you know, like nobody can find a home, and they're really expensive. <laughs> but uh, that's, you know, but but I will say, I mean. I tell my students, you know, like I'm watching Succession. I love Succession. But if you want drama, watch a Vancouver City Council hearing. And there is no, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Who's the best character on the show? You know, and it is hands down Colleen Hardwick. You know, she was in the film industry and she puts on a good show, whether you agree with her or whether you're a reasonable person. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thanks again for taking the time today, Tom. Really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Of course. Thank you. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with economics professor Tom Davidoff over at the UBC Sauter School of Business. Always enjoy having Tom on the program and really appreciate his time over the years. And today, you know, we we wanted to talk about this. It's been a lot of buzz around this making home new concept that's been introduced in Vancouver. We wanted to get someone on and Tom has been instrumental in this. So I, you know, who better to bring on than Tom Davidoff? And then it's always great to have him comment on, of course, interest rates, the market, forecasts, you know, he's he's not afraid to put his neck out there. That's for sure. And one thing about that conversation about making home, you know, obviously it's, we're in the sausage making phase, right? right? There's a lot of questions that are unanswered, but just as a thought experiment, I feel like this is something I'm going to be thinking a lot about specifically how you can get your peace. <laughs> <laughs> what this does to my home's value. Yeah. Uh, no, specifically around that kind of community amenity contribution component. Sure, sure. And I'm sure that's not what they're calling it, but some sort of fee where you basically are buying zoning. Um, right. How that works and how the market will respond to that. It's a, almost a fun exercise just to think through it. And then it's going to be really interesting to watch how the development community, how how the building community responds to it and how the city kind of navigates. Because one of the things Tom had kind of said was, well, there'll be some adjusting, right? Maybe we set a price and if the market reacts a certain way, then we pull back or or increase. So there's going to be this... You don't uh, want to be the first guy jumping in in that situation. Well, it's it, or maybe you do because yeah. maybe prices go up, maybe demand goes up. So yeah. it's going to be a, a real walk in a tightrope in the early days, trying to figure out how to how to balance the profit and, yeah. and uh, you know, what the development community, how they're going to approach it. And then there's a lot of other things factoring in, like we talked about, right? Building costs increasing and the cost of land right now is very high. So it'll just be an interesting, interesting experiment to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of questions still, a lot to think about. One thing I think we can answer with some certainty is this is definitely going to impact the east side of Vancouver more than the west side. Do you think so? I I feel like that's a that's a sure bet. Yeah. Well, I mean, and here's the other thing too is we are coming up on an election in the city of Vancouver, so it'll be it, it's an interesting timing for this, kind of a big big announcement, a big push on making home and affordability coming kind of before the election and we know uh it's been a complicated couple of years that Kennedy Stewart's had in office. So it's an interesting time, a great time to be alive. Oh yeah, and uh, <laughs> lots to tweet about. But we, before we cut for the day, Matt, we also have Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com for our back catalog, the Vancouver Commercial Real Estate Podcast catalog, the Live Wire. This is our weekly mailer where you're going to get VIP presale deals, commercial 
and residential. You get deal of the month. You get stats before anyone else. There's basically no reason why you don't want to be on the VREP Livewire. We also have private client services. Because Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor level information for free. It's available at your fingertips. It is the best way to look for real estate in Vancouver or the lower mainland or even BC. We can connect you with people that are using private client services all around the province. So feel free to reach out to look for real estate in Vancouver or, or the lower mainland. We can set you up with your free account. Head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And how can people reach you, Matt? Give me a shout at any time, 778-847-2854 or Matt at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or Adam at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And we also got that Kokomo line, info at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. Have a great week, guys. And uh, we'll see you next week with some more great content. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. 